Hi, I'm Linda Weatherby, and I was actually in the room in the enormous presentation in June where Dr. Modi presented her findings. I've been to many of these huge meetings, but I've never before seen or felt the excitement of a standing ovation. And I was swept up in it all, the cheering and the woot-wooting, and I'm sure I was emotional. (laughs) And then I thought, wait a minute, they were just talking about the significant delayed progression of five months and improved overall survival of 6.6 months. And I was like, are we kidding? What are we celebrating? But I began to realize as the conference went on that what the big damn deal really is, is an identification of a whole new subset of patients that are her too low, who had previously been considered her too negative. And now, for the first time, they actually have a treatment option. And that is a big damn deal. Welcome to the RMBC Life podcast from Share Cancer Support, dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease, and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. I'm Lisa Laudico, and I'm really glad you're here, since no one should face NBC alone. Hello, friends. I'm Victoria Goldberg. I'm so glad that you're here with me on our road to a cure. And we're joined today by a brilliant physician and cancer researcher, Dr. Shanu Mowley, practicing at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City, who will talk to us about the Destiny Breast 04 study she presented at this year's ASCO. We all know by now that the study results were the talk of the town. Impressive. Exciting garnering a standing ovation at the meeting, as well as a lot of press since. We will turn to our guest in a minute, and we'll ask her to talk about the findings and how it felt to be on the receiving end of a standing ovation. But first, I want you to hear what another brilliant oncologist wrote about her own experience in presenting data that she believed had the potential to change the treatment landscape of an aggressive form of breast cancer. And this presentation was at the 2005 annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, ASCO, in Orlando. As I walked into the large conference hall, I was moved to see how crowded it was. Friends, investigators, and collaborators filled the seats. And even more were standing in the back. There was an electric, uplifting atmosphere and a sense of anticipation. I took a deep breath and began. After I was finished, the huge audience was quiet as the significance of what I presented settled in. We oncologists hadn't seen that kind of advanced in breast cancer treatment in 30 years. The room erupted in applause, and everyone in the audience jumped to their feet for a standing ovation. 
they weren't just standing up for the investigators, but for the patients, their loved ones and doctors, and for this significant scientific advancement. What was so wonderful about the moment was that everyone in the room felt that they were part of something special and that we all did it together. As physicians, we aspire to improve the duration and quality of the lives of our patients. That's pretty profound at an individual level. But when you participate in a study like this, which has translated to impacting so many thousands of lives, well, that's it. That's a big moment. The physician's name is Dr. Edith Perez. And she's talking about the results of a study that she led and held design that showed that the use of monoclonal antibody herceptin in concert with chemotherapy rather than chemotherapy alone resulted in a 52% decrease in the recurrence of HER2 positive breast cancer in patients with early stage cancer and improved their survival by 33%. On June 5, 2022, my patient advocate friends and I were sitting in a cavernous hall of the McCormick Place Conference and in Chicago, waiting for the findings from the Destiny Breast of Phase 3 trial to be presented at the presidential plenary session of the American Society of Clinical Oncology annual meeting. It seemed that every conference participant was in the audience that moment. The stage up front was brightly illuminated, but the sitting area was dim. Finally, beautiful, an impeccably dressed Dr. Shinu Modi stepped to the podium and began speaking. I am presenting on behalf of my co-investigators from the Destiny Breast 04 trial as a global study. And it's an honor to present the first results from the randomized phase 3 trial of trastuzumab Durextecan, which is a HER2 antibody drug conjugate, versus the treatment of physician's choice in patients with HER2 low metastatic breast cancer. So we currently define the HER2 status of breast cancers in a binary model, where HER2-positive breast cancers driven by the oncogene are treatable with currently available HER2-targeted therapies. HER2-negative breast cancers are not. However, within the HER2 population, there are tumors that have low levels of HER2 expression, which we have termed HER2-low breast cancer, for which this HER2 receptor may still be targetable. Our currently available therapies, however, or HER2-targeted therapies, have not proven effective for patients in this subgroup. We currently treat these HER2-low breast cancer patients as HER2-negative breast cancer, where therapy is really guided by hormone receptor status. And ultimately, once we've exhausted endocrine therapies and the few lines of targeted agents, we really have limited late-line options for these patients, most commonly offering palliative single-agent chemotherapy, and, and this has very modest activity, so we really have a big unmet need for more effective therapies. So trastuzumab deruxtecan, called TDXD, is a next-generation HER2-targeted antibody drug conjugate. The Destiny Breast 04 trial is the first randomized phase 3 study of trastuzumab deruxtecan in patients with HER2-low metastatic breast cancer. This was an open-label, multi-center, multi-nation trial. We enrolled patients with centrally confirmed HER2-low breast cancer who had previously received one or two lines of chemotherapy in the metastatic setting. In addition, patients with hormone-positive breast cancer were required to have endocrine refractory disease. 
We define HER2 low by IHC scores of 1 plus or 2 plus without gene amplification using the ASCO CAP guidelines. Randomization was 2 to 1, and TDXD was given at the approved dose. The physician's choice of chemotherapy options included capecitabine, aribulin, gemcitabine, paclitaxel, and NAB paclitaxel, and they were administered per the local label. The primary endpoint of Destiny Breast 01 was progression-free survival in the patients with hormone-positive HER2-low breast cancer. Key secondary endpoints were progression-free survival for all patients and overall survival for the hormone receptor-positive patients and all patients on the study. We plan to enroll 540 patients, approximately 480 hormone-positive patients, and 60 hormone-receptor-negative patients to reflect the natural prevalence of these receptor subtypes seen in the HER2-low population. And now, here are the results. So starting with progression-free survival for the entire study population, the PFS hazard ratio was 0.5, with the p-value less than 0.0001. This translates to an improvement in median progression-free survival from 5.1 months with chemotherapy to 9.9 months with TDXD. These results were similar to the findings for the hormone receptor positive cohort and also the exploratory hormone receptor negative cohort. Overall survival was a key secondary endpoint for the entire study population. The OS hazard ratio is 0.64 with a significant p-value of 0.001. The median overall survival improved from 16.8 months with standard chemotherapy to 23.4 months with TDXD, which is a 6.6-month gain in survival. To summarize, Destiny Breast 04 met its primary and secondary endpoints. TDXD is the first HER2-targeted therapy to demonstrate statistically significant and clinically meaningful improvements in progression-free survival and overall survival compared to standard chemotherapy for patients with HER2-low metastatic breast cancer. The benefits of TDXD were seen across subgroups, including the hormone receptor positive and negative patients and the IHC 1 plus and 2 plus breast cancers. In the Destiny Breast 04 trial, we saw lung toxicity in 12% of patients, including a 0.8% incidence of grade 5 events with three reported deaths, highlighting the importance of awareness and close monitoring of patients to prevent the serious toxicity. The safety profile of TDXD in general was consistent with what we have seen in other trials. Overall, these results establish HER2-low metastatic breast cancer is a targetable population of breast cancer with trastuzumab durexican as a new standard of care in this setting. The minute Dr. Modi finished presenting the data, it was clear from the reaction on the whole that something historic has just happened. Just like on that important day in 2005, the room erupted in applause and the audience jumped for standing ovation. This reaction seemed out of character for that normally cool and skeptical crowd. It was such an emotional moment. I felt truly honored and humbled to be part of something that most patient advocates never have a chance to experience in their lifetimes. So it comes as no surprise that my first question to Dr. Modi was about her presentation at ASCO. It was just amazing that I got to be at ASCO to see that standing ovation. Oh, you were there. Wonderful. I was there. And a friend of mine who's triple negative, sitting right next to me, started to cry. 
when the numbers came out and many patient advocates around me responded so strongly to the news. And so when we saw the standing ovation, it did not seem like such a huge surprise to us. But then I ran into Nancy Lynn, who said that she had not seen this ever since the Herceptin announced. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to ask you, did you <laughs> expect such a response? No, honestly, although I will tell you, I knew that people were excited about this data and they were anxious to see these results. We had revealed the study was positive, of course, much earlier in the year. Everything is really in the details. How much better? What are the numbers? What are the survival statistics? People were really eager. I know this was one of the most anticipated presentations for breast people at the meeting. If you made it to the plenary. We made it to the plenary, naturally. But the standing ovation caught me off guard. And the audience response was just overwhelming and unexpected. I was speechless. I was overwhelmed up there. I feel like there was definitely something else in the room, too. As you said, I think the standing ovation was about this data, the excitement, the anticipation. It was also the first time we were all yes. together after a long time. There was so much emotion, I think, in that room. We all wanted something positive. I think it was a lot more than just the great data. It did deserve a standing ovation, but there was a lot more, I think, going on in people's hearts and minds. I interviewed Dr. Nilangar for, for the report back from ASCO, and he said that his office is right next to yours. Yes. And he was expecting a string of paparazzi after he came back. <laughs> 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 did not happen. All right. So let's get back to the details. First, I just wanted to ask you, and I always ask you this question. It's my favorite question. Tell me how you got into this profession and especially breast oncology. It's not the easiest field to go into. And why did you decide? To oh, the decision for me was easy, though. I fell in love with oncology. As a medical trainees, we are exposed to a variety of different disciplines within medicine. I knew the minute I started my oncology rotations, I also happened to be working with incredible, just inspiring colleagues. They were my mentors and they still are today in some respects. And did you um, start at MSKCC? I started in Canada. I'm Canadian. Western wow. Canada as well. Most people are wow. not Toronto, but nobody knows about Edmonton unless they're a hockey fan. And that's where I started at the Cross Cancer Institute. Incredible people, very inspirational. And academically, oncology is amazing to me. It is such an intellectual field. It requires constant studying. I'm constantly learning. That keeps me challenged. It keeps me on my toes. It's wonderful. I love that constant learning. I love the academic part of oncology. The emotional part is the patient population. And I really connect with, I connect with their problems, their life problems, their personal problems, their women problems for the most part. Obviously, I have male patients also. But I just connected with the patient population. It felt very natural. And so it really combined two parts for me that I just knew I had to do this with my life. I feel privileged, honestly, that I'm in the middle of a very big academic institution with the accessibility to the latest therapies, and we get to do the most cutting-edge research here. And then at the same time, I'm able to apply that to my patient population. So for me, in many ways, oncology has been a calling. It's really not a profession for me, but really a calling. That's what I would say. 
I'm sure you would have done very well in any other specialty. <laughs> we are so lucky to have you with us in oncology. And this is probably a good time to be in breast oncology. I would assume that there are changes happening all yeah. the time. So let's talk then about this amazing trial. So just to start, the HER2 low is not a new subtype, right? We've heard about people who have IHC 1 plus, 2 plus. I know there had been yeah. trials and yeah. it did not yeah. work. So as you said, and probably a lot of the audience will be familiar with the fact that in breast cancer, we divide our breast cancers into two groups, right? Either they're HER2 positive, we say, or HER2 negative. And HER2 positive, it's a small group. It's only 15 or 20% of all breast cancers. Everyone else, 80% is HER2 negative. The positive patients are the patients where HER2 is found in very high levels on the cancer cells. And those cancers are really driven by HER2. And also on the flip side, those are the cancers that are very sensitive to all of our HER2 targeted therapies. And they've really changed the lives of people. You. <laughs> on the other hand, we put everybody else into the HER2 negative category. But that's a very much an oversimplification because we know within that HER2 negative category, there are also cancers that have low levels of HER2, that one plus expression or two plus expression. So the target is there, but the frustration has been that all of our wonderful HER2 targeted therapies have not been helpful for patients whose cancers have that one plus, two plus, that low level of expression. And we've put them all in this category of HER2 negative. We treat them with chemotherapy. We don't use HER2 targeted therapies. But we know now as this new generation of drugs are being developed that these new antibody drug conjugates have shown exciting potential in the lab, in preclinical studies and early studies and they are able to target that low level of HER2 expression. And so really, that's what led us to the Destiny 4 trial. We knew this drug, trastuzumab drugstican, had phenomenal potential to be active, even in cases where there was just a tiny bit of that protein target. We saw that first in a phase one trial that we also led here at Memorial. So that was our proof of principle study. It was very exciting. We saw activity for a HER2 drug for the first time in these HER2 low patients. We'd not seen that before, as you alluded to. We had tested trastuzumab in a very big trial. It didn't work for HER2-low patients. We have looked at TDM1 in the HER2-low population. It really doesn't produce the same benefits. But here was this new drug, and by its very unique mechanism of action, it's able to be active against even low levels. And so that was the impetus, and we went with it, and we started the Destiny 4 trial, which was a big randomized phase 3 study. We enrolled hundreds of patients with HER2-low breast cancer, and we compared trastuzumab druxtecan versus standard chemotherapy in this trial. And we were really happy to see that the trastuzumab druxtecan not only was active, it was even better than what we would traditionally offer patients in this setting. It doubled the time of tumor control. It improved survival by a third for patients. I think this was a very positive trial. On average, it went from five months with chemotherapy up to 10 months approximately with TDXC therapy, which is very significant. And it also improved overall survival. It prolonged survival. So on average, patients had a gain in about six months of survival with the TDXD therapy. 
I know sometimes the numbers don't sound good enough. I feel that way too. They're great. They're, they never seem good enough. I've had some doctors at ASCO who were a little skeptical when they said that hazard ratio wasn't what they were hoping to see. But they're also forgetting that we're talking about a group of people who were already heavily pretreated. Yes. Giving them double, double the time. Yeah. It's meaningful when you think about this setting and the fact that we don't have good enough therapies for these patients. For many of the new drugs we introduce in the advanced stage breast cancer setting, we don't see any survival advantage. We see quality of life benefits. And so that six months is actually a very profound result for this group of patients. And it really will change the lives for a large number of women. But it's the beginning. It's not the end. We're not done. And so for me, it provides hope that we can have an impact in this later line setting, first of all, and that there is potential for even greater results as we move this drug forward. Let me ask you, as you alluded to it, actually, you said that this concept of antibody drug conjugate did not work with Catila for her too low. On the other hand, trastuzumab deroxican, which is also an antibody drug conjugate, yes. did. So is this because of the deroxican part, the chemo part, or the linker? It's hard to separate that. I think it's because of both, frankly. So the difference between Catsila or TDM1 and TDXD, the backbone is really Herceptin or Trastuzumab in both cases. So the targeted part is the same. What's different is the linker and the payload, the chemo. So in TDM1, we have a very stable linker. We call it non-cleavable. And the way the chemo payload works, it targets the tubulins in the cancer cell, the infrastructure. And this is a kind of chemo that we actually use a lot in breast cancer. They target that tubulant infrastructure of cancer cells. So a lot of breast cancer patients will have had other agents like the taxanes, like the vinca drugs that work by a similar mechanism. TXT is very unique. So first of all, the chemo payload is a topoisomerase 1 inhibitor. This is not a kind of chemotherapy we use in breast cancer. And so it's new. Our patients' cancers have never been exposed to this before. It has a very different mechanism of working. And Deruxican happens to be extremely potent and powerful. And we put about twice as many molecules of the chemo on each antibody. If we attach three or four with TDM1, we attach seven or eight with TDXE. So we're taking a lot more of this really potent chemo right to the cancer cells. And the key, of course, is that linker. So TDXD has a cleavable linker, which means that once it gets into the cell and the linker gets cleaved, it releases the chemo. It releases the chemo in such a way that the chemo retains its ability to pass through cell membranes. It's not trapped in the cell. And that's the difference with TDM1, that chemo can't leave. Here, the TDXD chemo can disperse. It can do what it needs to do to that cell, but then it passes and enters the microenvironment. It enters other cells and it can enter cells now without the targeted antibody. So now it can enter any kind of a cell, including a HER2 low cell. And so I think all of this explains why we're seeing such dramatic activity for this drug in a setting where our other HER2 targeted therapies have been unsuccessful. So it sounds to me, and it's not like I came up with this anyway, Dr. Neil Eingar mentioned it, that 
this particular drug behaves more like a systemic treatment drug, right? So the side effects are probably similar. So let's just talk about this a little bit, if that's actually the case. Yeah, I think TDM1 really set the bar high in terms of safety and tolerability. I still believe it's an amazing drug and it really revolutionized. We did the first in human trials of TDM1 here as well. Did you? I did not I, know I was that. part of that story as well. And I remember when we first started to put patients on the first inhuman trial of TDM1. And I remember thinking, this thing is a miracle. When we started and saw the results in the early patients, it was just as exciting. But it did not get the standing ovation. Can I tell you a very interesting little fact? The plenary for TDXD was exactly 10 years from the plenary presentation for the Amelia trial for TDM1. Wow. It was quite a dramatic moment, actually, and on so many levels. Look, these are very exciting drugs. And the reality is the technology has advanced as it should, right? We should be doing better and better. And so the technology has really advanced with ADC therapies to the point where we have drugs like TDXD that work exceptionally well. You're right. There is a little bit of a trade-off. We see a little more toxicity, and it is probably due to some of these properties that are beneficial, but then also bring some extra side effects. And so we do know, however, that this is not like giving systemic chemotherapy. The very early trials of Durextecan showed us that this was a drug we really couldn't give as regular chemo. The side effects were too high if we wanted to get to a level of drug that had activity. The question was asked that asked. Yes, I, was. why not just Durextecan? Yes, I think I forget who answered it now. The chair of the session who answered it perfectly said, "Look, we gave this drug years ago by itself. We know this is targeted therapy. We know we need the antibody." The question that still remains open is, how much protein do we really need? How much HER2 needs to be on the cell? That's still an open question. And Destiny 4 wasn't really designed to answer that question. There are studies going on now that are looking to see, can we figure out what level of HER2 needs to be there? And I suspect it's lower than one. So the Destiny 6 trial is ongoing. It's looking at patients with cancers that have less than one plus, but more than zero. We call that the ultra HER2 low group. So stay tuned for the ultra HER2 low day. Ultra HER2 low. Ultra HER2 low. So then of course, you knew I would ask you, IHC measures are imprecise, right? They are and they're not. So what are we going to do about the... That's a very fair question. The reality is IHC was never designed to be used this way. The IHC was designed to find the HER2 positive patients, the three plus, and that was it. It was never meant to be used as a quantitative assessment of two plus, one plus. I think in some ways, our pathologists haven't spent a lot of time even dedicated to deciphering is a zero, is it one plus, and rightly, because there was no clinical implication for that. So the goal was to find the three plus or the positive patients. And then everybody else, as we said, was called HER2 negative, really. And here in the Destiny 4 trial, we have nicely shown you can use this IHC test to find the one plus, two plus patients, but it's not going to be good enough to find the ultras. And uh, we'll see the Destiny 6 is ongoing and they are using IHC, but we already know there are many quantitative HER2 assays out there that can really define the quantity of HER2 on the cells. And it is on a spectrum. And those may be more appropriate tests 
for the antibody drug conjugate type of therapies than standard IHC. IHC has served us fairly well, I would say up till this point. But as these newer generation therapies are being developed, it's clear we're going to need a different test for these particular drugs. So let me ask you, Destiny 6, is it still accruing? It is. So can you tell me a little bit more about it so that maybe some of the listeners would be interested in joining yeah. the trial? Listen, it's very similar in some ways to Destiny 4. It's a randomized study again, and it's for patients with her too low, the one plus, the two plus, and then there is a small group of patients that ultra low that they're also considering. So this greater than zero, less than one plus. So those are the patients eligible and if they have hormone receptor positive breast cancer. So they are limiting Destiny 6 to the hormone receptor positive, her too low and ultra low patients. And, and why is that? The reality is the majority of her too low breast cancers are hormone positive. Oh, is that true? Yeah, almost 90%. So it's a small group that's hormone receptor negative. And that was also why in the Destiny 4 trial, there was a smaller proportion of the hormone receptor negative patients. So they have really focused on the predominant group. And there are other dedicated studies for the hormone receptor negative HER2 low population ongoing as well. In that population, the results numerically were not as good as for hormonal positive, but they were more dramatic. Yes, you said it beautifully. That's a group that we could also call triple negative, of course. Yes. And we know that's a poorer prognosis group. Yes. It's a more aggressive cancer. So you're right. If you looked at the absolute numbers, they were all lower for those patients than the hormone receptor positive cohort. But the benefits were equally, if not even superior. So that was nice to see. Those were very clinically meaningful results, I felt. And so I do tell people, please... Feel comfortable using TDXD in the HER2 low triple negative breast cancer patients. This works. But that's why the Destiny 6, to come back to that, is limited to the hormone positive patient. We're sort of separating out these two groups now. And they're randomizing them again to TDXD or to standard chemo, a physician's choice. The only other caveat being these are less pretreated. So they're not allowed to have prior chemotherapy. Okay. Yeah. So it's that's a less pretreated group. Yeah. Yeah, well, we're really excited. I think it's enrolling very rapidly. People are really interested in participating. So then the inclusion criteria would be no prior lines of him for metastatic disease. And still a resist criteria. Yes, very similar to Destiny 4. So it would be difficult for people with the bone-only disease that's not measurable to get onto these yeah. At the end of the day, we often extrapolate these results and we always look at, even in Destiny 4, the category of patients based on bone metastases. So at the end of the day, it's just very challenging to be very precise sometimes with measuring bone metastases. And so when you're trying to do a regulatory study where you really need to pinpoint results and be precise, we sometimes end up limiting the bone met patients on those trials. Not all trials. We do include them in, in many studies. And then, of course, once these therapies are approved, we use them. We naturally extrapolate to those bone met patients as well. Of course. Speaking of that. Uh, it's still not FDA approved for low HER2, but I know it had been added to the guidelines. Correct. You are correct so, about that. If it's FDA approved for HER2 positive, for HER2 low, we've submitted the data to the FDA and they are 
doing a priority review. So it is on a fast track with the FDA. We anticipate to hear back from the SDA before the fall of this year. But you're right. I think our guidelines are very responsive and NCCN immediately incorporated PDXD as an option for her too low metastatic breast cancer. So it does make it easier for us to appeal to insurance companies to try and get the therapy for our patients who need it today. So that makes a real big difference. The NCCN guidelines are widely accepted and used by payers as the standard of care. So I think that that is precisely why the NCCN worked very quickly to review the results of Destiny 4 and made that update to the guidelines. It does help physicians to get access to these drugs as the FDA deliberates. Yeah, I always think about this. So people go to ASCO and they see the result of this incredible trial. As they said, practice changing, but can they change their practice the next day they come back to right. their clinic? Probably not. Look, I think the community is so much more responsive today than ever before. And we literally saw NCCN guidelines turn around yeah. in two yeah. weeks. It was pretty phenomenal. And I think people appreciate that fact that there are people today who can really benefit and we don't have the luxury of time for everybody. So things do move a lot more quickly now. And I think if you have a doctor who's willing to go to bat for you, you can get access to these therapies, at least here. It's still disappointing that access is not equitable around the world. And I've had people say, this is great, but it's not going to help people outside the U.S. And that's really sad to think about. Is that true, though? It would take a little longer. Yes, eventually. And the other way that a lot of the companies try to get this out to the patients and the rest of the world is through clinical trials. So they do try. And often once there is an FDA approval, they do open compassionate programs for patients outside of the U.S. so they can get access as well. You know, my friends who had been on trials have experienced something that seems very unfair, that some of these randomized trials, and I don't know if Destiny 04 was written the same way, when you get into a control arm and you progress in a control arm, they don't allow the crossover to the drug arm. And that seems incredibly unfair, especially for those who had participated in the trial and that's maybe one of their last options remaining. Yeah, I totally hear that. And I think with putting my clinician's hat on, yes, if it's a positive drug, and look, we don't know that before we do the trials, that's part of it. And there is toxicity issues. We do have to be mindful. If we already know the results, then why are we doing the trials? So we have to do these studies And it's a challenge because we want to show there is a survival advantage. I think patients also want to know that. And it's difficult to do that if we do these crossover designs. We want to have everyone have access to it. And then my academics had is we need to prove this first. And so I feel a little conflicted. But again, this is why I applaud the guidelines committees that rushed to make this available as quickly as possible once we knew that the results were positive. Wow. Yeah. So I also wanted to ask you, okay, so the ultra low, that's the next group that will be targeted for this. What about the group of HER2 negative patients who are known as mutants? 
Well, yes. What about that group? So we have seen some pretty impressive results with HER2 targeted therapies for HER2 mutated breast cancers as well, and other cancers. I think really leading the field is lung cancer. Lung cancer is very different than breast cancer. Even the HER2, what we would call quote unquote positive lung cancer patients, they really haven't derived the same benefit from traditional HER2 targeted therapies. But Patients with HER2 mutations have, we've seen TDM1 work for the lung patients. We've seen TDXD work for the HER2 mutated lung cancer patients. So they really already have great data for TDXD in that setting. We know a very small group, it's a few percent only. So it's not the majority of our breast patients, but a few percent will have HER2 mutations as well. And we have already seen tremendous activity with tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Yes, for neuratinib. Right. Neuratinib specifically. And so there are exciting ways of providing targeted therapy for this group of patients. Now, TDXD also happens to be active, it appears, for that group of breast cancer patients. So there is a big trial. I want to say it's Destiny 12. Yes, I think we're past 12 already. Destiny 12, where they are, I hope I'm not incorrect if it's called Destiny 12. Forgive me if I'm wrong. So there is a big trial that is looking at patients with solid tumors, including breast, with HER2 mutations who were being treated with TDXD. So we will have a point estimate and answer to that question in the near future. It's really promising. Clearly, the standing ovation was so deserved. This drug definitely deserves it. I have to agree. And look, we had started to talk about toxicity and don't ever want to leave off that there is lung toxicity, which is real. And it needs to be talked about every time we talk about this drug, because I don't want people to forget that this is an important thing that has to be monitored. We don't want to slip backwards. I think the reason that we are able to say this is such a tremendous therapy is it's active and we have learned to manage the lung toxicity better today than when we first started out. And that's because of vigilance and awareness. And we cannot lose sight of that. So every time I talk about the efficacy, I talk about the safety and the lung toxicity and the need again to remind physicians and patients to be vigilant for respiratory symptoms on this therapy, take them seriously, hold treatment and investigate. And only when you are fully convinced that this is not drug toxicity in the lung, or if it's a very mild grade one toxicity, if it fully recovers, then you can re-challenge these patients. I was going to say that what surprised me, I saw in some literature that they were also referring to cardiac toxicity for this drug as well. Herceptin has that problem, and I have to go and do echoes every three months. So I think the cardiac toxicity is is well within what we expect for trastuzumab. The rates were not alarming by any means. I think they're within what we've seen with trastuzumab. It's just different because up till now, we've been using TDXE in HER2-positive patients and patients who've had years of HER2-targeted therapy or at least some HER2-targeted therapy already and have shown that they can pass the HER2 cardiac test. So in some ways, Destiny 4 was a real look at cardiac toxicity in unselected patients. And we saw the rates that are similar for trastuzumab, so not alarming. It does require, again, an awareness. In the risk-benefit analysis, I think it's clear this is still a drug that improves survival for patients. And the cardiac risk is something we're used to monitoring as oncologists. No, No real surprise here. 
So going back to side effects, the most common side effect, that's what I've heard from people, is GI-related stuff. Nausea, diarrhea, is that true? The number one side effect, and I think we've seen this consistently in all the trials, is nausea. In the early studies, we didn't use preventative therapies. Now, I think even the ongoing trials are all requiring prophylactic antinausias, which is what we should do with this drug. And I think for the vast majority, we can control the nausea. So you Uh, you give Zofran in the IV? IV, yeah, and often a little bit of dexamethasone as well, and then usually (laughs) give patients the prescription to take at home. And you can peel back always for the patients who are really doing well without any nausea. That's great. We have the ability to peel back on the steroids, for example. Of course, and I'm a living example. By the time I was finished with Taxol, I had stopped taking dex. But what about hair loss? For a lot of metastatic patients, not an issue because we get to lose our hair over and over again. But for this group that are HR positive, they're not as used to chemos right off the bat. So they do ask, what happens with my hair? And look, we're trying to do better. Today we have cooling caps or scalp cooling. Uh, Do they work? So we're testing that. This is a little bit different. It's the um, antibody drug conjugates. They are fundamentally antibodies. So they stick around for a lot longer than regular chemo does. We don't know how effective, but there is a study ongoing looking to see. And look, what one thing we can, I think, extract from the data is that the more heavily pretreated patient populations where they may have lost their hair once or twice already. The rate of alopecia was 40%, roughly. But in the less pretreated Destiny 3 patient population, the rate of grade 2 alopecia was 10%. So as we move this drug perhaps earlier on, we may see that the rates of hair loss are not as high as the initial reports in a more pretreated population. And I do hope for that population that the cooling caps will make a difference so that women can keep their hair. I think that is an important consideration. And so we're investigating that right now. Let me ask you, this is complete aside. It's related to a friend of mine who is now on the Tropian trial, the TROP2 trial. I think it uses the same payload. Yes. Would they see the same alopecia levels as... I want to say the dose. I think as the dose of the drug is higher, we are seeing higher rates of some of the side effects that are more pronounced than the dose we use in our HER2 positive and HER2 low breast cancer patients with TDXD. So I think part of that is a bit of a dose-related phenomenon. But yes, I think in general, the profile is very similar. At the end of the day, the payload is the same. So you just mentioned Destiny 03. And Dr. Hamilton, I think, announced yeah. the follow-up overall results for Destiny Presto 3, and they were a little overshadowed by your announcement, of course. And the numbers are incredible for the HER2 population, HER2 positive population. In fact, that progression-free survival has not been reached in the drug arm. So my question, which may probably makes no sense, but I want to ask you anyway, why are the numbers a little different for the HER2 low population. Is that because the mechanism of resistance works a little differently in the HER2 low population? 
It's a great question. I think we're definitely seeing a gradient of response based on the level of target. So I think it has a lot to do with the mechanism of action. So HER2 positive patients have a log fold, if not more, higher HER2, the target. So presumably they're just getting more drug. And so that's why we're seeing really outstanding response rates. If we compare response rates in the Destiny 3, I want to say it was over 80% yeah. for the HER2 positive. And the for the HER2 hazard ratio was amazing. Amazing. And for the HER2 low, it's 50%. So there's clearly something about the level of target expression that is, I think, related to the activity. Yeah. Too bad. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about what you are doing right now. What are you working on? What are you excited about? look for the next steps. This was a pretty groundbreaking trial. And and there are a lot of, I think, directions we can go. And one of the things you're going to see reported at our next big meeting are, are the patient reported outcomes. There is a lot of correlative work that is yet to be reported as well that's ongoing. A lot of interest in understanding who are the good responders, who are the less good responders to this drug. Can we do something to bring the less good responders up to the level of the high responders. A lot of things that are percolating in the background as there are some trials already underway like Destiny 6. And then, of course, the real next step is to bring this drug to the early stage setting. We know today already that there are patients with hormone-positive HER2-low breast cancer for whom our current therapies are just not good enough. And we need better for those patients. And this could be that answer. And so we are in planning stages of big early stage trials for those patients. There is one small randomized study already ongoing for early stage hormone positive HER2 low patients. It's a randomized study mostly happening out West. Patients get TDXD or TDXD plus endocrine therapy. It's a neoadjuvant trial. Okay. Uh, and so, so they start with CDXD, not correct. Oh, correct. So it, that's a really important study. We're going to learn so much from that trial, and it will, I think, also inform the big, large studies we want to do for the early stage patients. So yeah, yeah. a lot of exciting things. Oh, uh, I know. But aside okay. from this one, what other drugs are you working on? Or you can't really talk about. Oh, it. No, look, we have a big portfolio of trials. Yeah. There are a number of other new generation antibody drug conjugates like TDXD that are showing activity in HER2 low breast cancer. We are bringing one of these new ADCs here as well in both our breast service and our early development service. Mm -hmm. So more ADC studies definitely in the pipeline. We're still trying to get the maximum or the potential of immune therapy for our HER2 positive patients. The traditional immune drugs like checkpoint inhibitors, bispecific. So we have a trial of a HER2 bispecific and we have some trials in our early development service as well here looking at different other bispecific. Can you explain what bispecific is for Sure. When you think of an antibody and like Herceptin, for example, it targets HER2. But we can now engineer these antibodies so that one part of the antibody targets HER2 and the other part of the antibody targets another cell. And in this case, it's an immune cell. So you bring the immune system and the cancer in close proximity as well and try and bring an activated immune system to the area of the cancer. And so that's what some of the bispecifics are focused on doing. So really exciting sort of new things. And like I keep telling everyone, stay tuned. There's still lots more to come in this story. All right. I am not going to keep you any longer. I know you're very busy, but I will ask you the last question. What do you do for fun? Do you have any time for fun? (laughs) 
Oh, of course. Listen, I have a family. I have three kids. Oh, no, oh, no. Three? Three I kids. I don't know how you people do that. A very stressful career. And every time I talk to a female breast oncologist, the number of kids is growing. <laughs> I'm going to give full credit to a wonderful spouse and we have help and it takes a village. I really believe that. <laughs> so I'm blessed to have people around who've helped raise our family with us and they provide an endless source of entertainment and joy and pleasure for me. But I'm a runner. I love to exercise. I read. I have other hobbies as well. So I find a way to get the release that I think all of us need. Thank you so very much. And I would keep you here for another five hours and have <laughs> questions to ask you, but I'm very aware of your time and thank you. It was my pleasure, so Victoria, nice. really. So nice to meet you and hope to see you again soon. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. On August 5th, 2022, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, FDA, approved trastuzumab Rexdecan, also known as TDXDR in HER2, as an intravenous infusion for the treatment of patients with metastatic HER2 low breast cancer, the first approved therapy targeted to patients with the HER2 low breast cancer subtype. It is estimated that 200 87,000 new cases of female breast cancer will be diagnosed in 2022 in the United States. Approximately 80 to 85% of those new cases were previously considered to be HER2 negative subtype, including hormone receptor positive and triple negative breast cancers. Of that proportion of breast cancer diagnoses, about 60% of patients will now be considered as HER2 low breast cancer subtype. Only the remaining much smaller group with IHC0 scores now defined as HER2 negative. One of the difficulties in defining HER2 low breast cancer is the instability of HER2 expression. Over time, investigators found a significant change from HER2 low to HER2 zero and vice versa as cancers progress from primary to metastasis. And this occurs regardless of the hormone receptor status. And by comparison, HER2-positive breast cancers have much more stable and consistent expression over time. And IHC0 does not mean an absence of HER2. In fact, by ASCO-CAP definition, IHC0 means that less than 10% of cells have HER2 stain. There is a clear gradient of HER2 expression by IHC score so that even IHC0 breast cancer have some HER2 present. Because of its unique mechanism of action, in particular the bystander effect, tumors that have IHC scores on 1 plus or 2 plus, they're now treatable with trastuzumab deruxtecan. And perhaps in the future we'll have other HER2-targeted therapies. The HER2 landscape is still evolving. Interesting and thought-provoking, Data from the DAISY study showed a 30% response rate for CDXD in patients with HER2-IHC0 scores. So an important question arises. What is the lowest threshold of HER2 expression needed to activate CDXD? To answer this question, Destiny Breast 06, 
which is also a randomized phase three study of TDXD versus physician's choice of chemo, is now enrolling. And this is a trial open to patients with for too low, but it also includes patients with less than one plus IHC, but greater than zero. And this group is now referred to as ultra-low HER2 breast cancer. Destiny Breast 08 is another trial Dr. Modi has alluded to. This study is looking to combine TDXD with other novel therapies, including immune therapies and targeted agents and chemo agents to try and maximize the benefit of the ADC. Similarly, the Begonia trial that was not previously mentioned is a study testing Develomab, which is a checkpoint inhibitor in combinations with patients with metastatic triple negative breast cancer. And one arm of this trial is dedicated to HER2 low triple negative breast cancer patient. That is definitely a trial to watch. The TDXD is a very active agent in the treatment of HER2 positive breast cancer brain testers. The question now is, where the TDXD is also effective for patients with HER2 low breast cancer brain meds, and the Deborah trial is including the specific group, potential, we have more targeted treatment options for the HER2 low population in the future. Tarsuzumab duocarmazine, previously called YD985, and distamab vedotin, previously known as RC48, have both shown response rate in 30 to 40% range for patients with HER2 low metastatic breast cancer. And there are already large randomized trials underway. So as Dr. Modi says, there is a lot more to look forward to. Wow, this was a lot, wasn't it? I got tired reading what I had written. Still, I hope it was useful. But do we need a shorter version of the takeaways? think we do. I was all set to do it myself. But Dr. Patricia LaRusso, Associate Director of Innovative Medicine at Yale Medicine, has done it so much better than I ever could. Here she is, summarizing her take on the Destiny Bresto for trial. So the results of Destiny for Breast were amazing. First of all, this is a large randomized phase three trial, one of the first that's demonstrating really therapeutic benefit of HER2 targeted agents in HER2 low breast cancer. And because many of the other drugs that we've had and used in the past, of which are numerous, really didn't target this population, this is a game changer. It's a game changer not only in that we have therapeutic interventions now that we can give these patients, but also we need to rethink how we identify these patients. HER2 low, which was really never a category that we thought about before, is now a category that is real and is relevant and comprises at least half of all breast cancers. So we've really opened up, number one, a new classification. We have to really rethink how we classify these patients. Number two, how do we identify these patients? Do we have the right diagnostics or do we need to define additional diagnostics? And number three, do we need to go back to women that have had metastatic breast cancer 
and relook and see how we defined them as her too negative. Because there's a lot of women and men out there that have had metastatic breast cancer for a while, and they may not have had IHC testing. But even if they did, because of the variability, do we need to reread their tissue and have it looked at by more than one pathologist? Because if you think about it, the majority of women between the HER2 low and the HER2 positive will now be eligible for a drug like tristuzumab directs TCAN. I would like to end this episode in the same way it began, with the voice of a friend patient advocate recalling her personal experience of being in the ASCO plenary and watching Dr. Shanu Modi announce the results Destiny Breast or four. Here's Christian Hutchinson. I had been hearing rumblings from oncologists and others that there would be really big news coming out at ASCO. And I was actually concerned. I was working with several patients who had run out of treatment options. And I knew that in her too might be an additional option for these patients. So I arrived to the talk about a half an hour early, which is very unusual for me, but I really wanted a good seat. And I was so happy to actually be in this room hearing the results reported out live. Dr. Modi did not mince words. One of the first things she said was, this is likely going to be a new standard of care for a newly defined subtype of breast cancer called HER2-low. And I know that there are many, many patients that are hurt too low. Some don't even know that they are at this point. But I knew that this meant that now patients had an additional option when they had none before. With this news, tears sprung into my eyes. And I, along with the majority of the audience, stood up to give Dr. Modi a well-deserved standing ovation for this incredible advancement in cancer research. Hope you enjoyed this episode and got a lot out of it. If you'd like to discuss this episode or any other, please join our new closed Facebook group, our MBC Lab group. This episode was produced by me, Victoria Goldberg. Original music and sound design by our associate producer and sound editor, Connor Kinsley. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, Vice President of Patient Support and Education at Share Cancer Support. You can find more episodes of our NBC Live wherever you get the podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. Check out our blog and full episode notes on our website at ourmbclife.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ourmbclife.